listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I'll tell you of a, a story I read this week uh, by Chuck Swindoll uh, shares this story. And he says it isn't true, and we'll believe him at that. But he reads it this way. He says, far off in the dark, foggy night, a captain of a massive battleship spotted this faint light. Immediately, he ordered his signal man to send this message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Well, promptly, the captain, he received a message, a response that said, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the indignant captain stiffened and obviously not having used to having his orders rejected, he repeated the message, this time with a greater force and an added punch. Alter your course 10 degrees. I'm the captain of this vessel. Well, almost immediately, another message was received in calm and to the point, he said, I'm Seaman Third Class Jones. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, at this time, the captain, he fumed. And what was a low-ranking seaman doing giving orders to a ship captain? This had to stop. So he responded pointly, young man, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is a battleship. Then came the terse reply, as the light pierced the darkness. Captain, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees north. This is a lighthouse. Well, what happens when we see Ephesians chapter 5? It is this contrast between a life of life and a light of darkness. Exhorting us as believers to maintain their walk as children of light and to expose deeds of darkness. Chuck Swindoll closes by saying it this way. But like a stubborn, self-confident captain, unwilling to change the course of his ship, our sinful flesh will seek to resist the obvious course of action. Heed God's warnings and walk in his ways. To do anything else would mean to run headlong into moral disaster. You know, I think what we often don't realize is that all of us, we are simply only a few decisions away, sometimes one decision, for our lives being altered in a way that we would never expect. In fact, Marla is great about having phrases or quotes around our house, and there's one in our kitchen right now that I've been thinking about for weeks now, and it goes this way. It says, doing the will of God will never ruin your life. I've been thinking about that. and It goes on to say something like, doing the will of God by the grace of God will never ruin your life. Now, doing the will of God, it may take your life. It may cost you your life. But doing the will of God will never ruin your life. Because each and every day, we are always facing real dangers. And we have said this numerous times, that there is no sin that is beneath any of us. But as believers, and when we do fail, there's always a road that leads back to hope. And so Paul this morning is going to talk about some things that will obviously ruin 
and absolutely ruin our lives. And he wants his words to be like that beacon of a lighthouse. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5. Today we're going to cover the first 14 verses. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an adulterer or an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to gather as your church once again. And we get to open your word together. The words that you have given us, that you have preserved, and you have them for us today. This Lord, as always, Lord, would your spirit lead and teach us this morning. That we believe that your word has something for all of us that we need to hear. And by your spirit, Lord, help us to do that. Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen. So this is how we began a few weeks ago. We saw Paul's, first of all, in chapter 4, his call to unity. Then last week we saw his call to purity, as I called it. And this week it is his call to love. And love is one of those interesting words. It's a word that we use often. We will say things like, you know, I love the beach or I love the mountains. I love ice cream or cookies I love my children, we love our families, we love our church, and we've even heard the phrase, well, I have fallen in love. When thinking about this word, I wondered about all the ways it is defined. How are people trying to describe what this idea of love is? Words like strong affection, attraction, trust was one that was used, or companionship and goodwill. One time I heard it described that love is not so much a feeling as it is a commitment. In fact, you see it in Scripture, talked in various ways. You see the word phileo, that friendship love, the romantic love, and the agape love. 
this morning I want you to think about what is love or what does love look like? How do you know love when you're watching it happen? Well, Paul is going to give the Christians in Ephesus, and I call this a call to love. But when he describes a love, it is something, it actually surprised me. And I think it will you too. Well, here's our bottom line. Here's how I want to define love this morning. That love is something that wants nothing to do with something. That love wants nothing to do with something. But it wants everything to do with something. And we're going to see what those somethings are this morning. And so here's your outline how I have broken up this passage. The first thing we're going to see is his call or his call to walk in love. The second half of that section will be that love wants nothing to do with sin. And love shines true light. That love wants everything to do about shining light. So let's look at Paul's call to love to them, to the Ephesians in verse 1 and 2. Notice how he begins. He says, therefore... So he's thinking of all the things he has previously said. And then he tells them to be imitators of God. And you all know what this is like. And to be imitators, to imitate something. In fact, when our children are young, they often want to imitate their parents. And that can be encouraging or it can be humiliating. And you know what that's like when your kids are imitating you. Well, I was looking back, and this is one of my favorite pictures of Marcus and and myself. Now... My summer attire is shorts and boots. And that's just what I love to wear in the summer, uh, shorts and boots. And so one day I'm out working in the yard. And the problem is I look at my yard now and I look at what it used to be. And I'm like, what happened? Well, I'm working out in the yard one day. And all of a sudden Marcus comes uh, running out with his ball and his bat. And look at how he's dressed. Shorts and cowboy boots. So when our children grow up, they want to imitate us. But then what happens? They get a mind of their own. They know more than we do. and They they are trying to gain this independence. And that's a thing that is built into us. That we want to imitate our parents at the beginning. And then we want to become our own independent people. They begin as children and they grow into their own beings. When you think about the Christian life, to me it seems that it is very different than our natural or our earthly lives. That our Christian lives, that we are born not wanting anything to do with God. We are not born into his family. We're alienated from him and scripture says we see him as an enemy. But then, by God's grace, we're born again and we meet Jesus then from that point on, our lives should be this walk that we want to become more like him, not more independent. And then notice the call. He says to walk in love. And this is the third time he has used this. And we saw two weeks ago, this word walk means to live your life. And whatever you're doing to live your life in this way, that's what Paul is describing when he says walk. And our lives should be marked by love. And look at how Paul begins to describe it. He says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That Paul is describing a love that is self-sacrificing. 
The love is not in this for themselves. So he's saying walk in love, living a life that is self-sacrificing. And then when we do this, Paul tells us that our lives become a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, that it is pleasing to him when we live self-sacrificing lives. Well, this is where now Paul does something unexpected to me. And he often does that, and Paul's the one that's always right. But if he's describing this kind of self-sacrificing love, I then would expect Paul to give us some examples of Christ and how he did those, that he went out of his way to help people. When people were evil to him, he turned the other cheek and he even forgave them. He fed people in need. That's self-sacrificing. He took time out of what he wanted to do to teach others. He never looked at them as an interruption. And to me, that would be self-sacrificing. But when thinking of a call to walk in love, notice where Paul begins. And I've titled this section, Love Wants Nothing to Do with Sin. So he's just described a self-sacrificing love. And then he says, but sexual immorality. Thank you for that one, Paul, in a room full of children. What is he talking about? Well, it's the word pranea. And he's describing all kinds of sexual sin outside of marriage that would include fornication and adultery, homosexuality, and even prostitution. But doesn't that seem like a strange place to begin when you're talking about self-sacrificing love? And he goes to sexual immorality. But remember who he is writing to. He's writing to believers that are living in a notoriously sinful city of Ephesus. High above the city sat the temple of Artemis. And at the center of this worship in this temple was the goddess Diana. And she is a symbol. Now, I was going to show a picture, but I wasn't going to do that in a room full of children. But this was a goddess that represented and symboled of sexuality and sin. So you would get up and you were going to the temple that day. What would usually happen on your way would be this ritual prostitution that would take place. And it was absolutely culturally accepted. You weren't looked at as someone strange or doing something that you shouldn't be doing. It was even celebrated. So they took something that God had designed to be a blessing between a husband and wife and distorted it and made it into a sinful idol. And we hear that and we think, how strange would a place be that you had this temple that you knew when people walked up that hill, the acts they would be involved in. But then we have things like the bachelor and the bachelorette. But I know that's stepping on some toes, so I'll move on. Well, then he says, all impurity meaning moral uncleanness, anything that would cause shame or guilt, things that can turn easily into obsessions or addictions. And then he uses the word covetous, or yours might say greed. At first, that seems a little out of place to me because Paul is probably including, as we think of greed or, or covetous, like material things. We covet a person's car or house or clothes or something like that. But here, he specifically means coveting another person. 
of satisfying a desire by taking what does not belong to us. So he says all of these, all impurity, all covetousness, all sexual immorality, he says, must not be named among you. Now, I didn't just sin by reading those words. He's not saying that you should not talk about those words. But what he means is do not entertain discussions about them. Because notice these behaviors. He says they are not proper among saints or Christians. I think what Paul is hinting at is what we usually do. There isn't a thing when we look at things, but all people, we are really good at one thing. We are really good at justifying, reclassifying, and even excusing or lessening sin. We're all really good at that. In fact, G.K. Chesterton says this when thinking about this passage. He says, men do not differ much about what things they will call evils. That's not a big disagreement. But they differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. So as believers, followers of Christ, he says, imitators of God, we should stop excusing, justifying, or lessening the ideas of sin, and we should run the other way. But I've been thinking, why would Paul begin with those areas? When describing love, that's the call why would he begin with sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness? I think the reason is because these are the exact opposite of a self-sacrificing life. All of those, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, those are all grounded in selfishness. So true love wants nothing to do with selfishness. That love wants nothing to do with sin. Because it's all about self. But Paul's not finished. He's about to get real personal. Just when you thought you were in the clear, look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking. So all of us with potty mouths, Paul is talking to us, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul's just used some powerful illustrations. He begins with filthiness. He means um, disgraceful words, a word that would rob someone of their dignity. And we all know the examples. Or foolish talk, it's the word moron, uh, which means fool. But fool primarily, when we would use that, means somebody that's kind of lacking an intellectual ability. But here it is someone that denies the reality of, of God, that they're a fool in that. So I think Paul would also include in here, could also mean that when we are the ones trying to define or judge what is good and evil, that we are talking about something we have no authority on, that we are actually living and talking as fools. Well, then he uses crude joking. The word means coarse gesturing. It's taking something innocent and making it subjective or vulgar or immoral. In fact, I was talking about this this morning with Tom in the back. And he said, well, I teach eighth graders. He said, man, they are, they, they've got that down. He said, there's hardly anything I can say that they don't turn it to mean something improper. 
But all of this, notice he says, these which are out of place. That those types of behaviors or words, they are inconsistent with an imitator of God. But here's a sobering thought. Let me read for you Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37. When thinking about the words that come out of our mouth. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account of every careless word they speak. Every single word. For the words that you will be justified and by your, word, your words you will be condemned. But notice the solution that Paul includes at the end of that verse. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. That when temptation comes to say that word, to degrade that person, or to turn something innocent into something immoral, he says, use your words for thanksgiving. That got me to thinking about uh, the buffalo trips that are coming up in a few months now. It's getting closer and closer. Paul Keel would always gather everybody around and say, there is one rule. There's one rule in a buffalo trip, and it is no complaining. If you find yourself complaining about something or wanting to complain about something, find someone to encourage. And I think that's kind of what Paul is saying, that when we find ourselves being tempted with using our words in horrible ways to stop and to give thanks for something. Because love wants nothing to do with sin. Well, then in verse 5, Paul gives a very strong warning. Like it says, for you may be sure of this. You can take this to the bank. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That Paul says, no practicing sinner no unrepentant, sexually immoral, or impure person has eternal life. And that is a strong warning. But it isn't the only time that Paul has done this. You could turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 21. He says almost the same thing. He says people that are in such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. He's saying the same warning. But then I think we have to stop and think, but don't Christians fall in and commit these sins? And we would say absolutely they do. But a true Christian will never persist in them. That eventually a true Christian will repent and to seek God's forgiveness. So I think Paul is saying that a person that persistently lives a life filled with sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and empty words, that is evidence of a person that hasn't met Christ, of a graceless life. And those will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says the wrath of God is coming upon them. But now notice Paul's warning to the Christians. And I call this, love shines true light. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. He says, people that are doing those things don't get involved. But notice he's not saying don't be nice and 
Don't be polite or, or don't ever talk to them or not be friendly. He doesn't say that. He says, though, do not be partners with them. Do not engage with them in those activities. And then to me, this next section is the most powerful part of this passage. Because notice what believers now we are supposed to do. He tells us what not to do. Don't be partners with them. But look at what we should do beginning in verse 8. For at you time, at one time you were darkness. But now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern or prove to show what the pleasing it is to the Lord. But notice he says you were darkness. So speaking of these believers, you notice he doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. He's telling them you didn't just have a problem, that you were the problem. That we don't go and sin and that makes us sinners. We sin because we are sinners. The same is true for us, that we were not just in darkness, we were darkness. And notice he says, you are light in the Lord. So not only are we to be imitators of God, we are to be Christ representatives of the risen Lord Jesus Christ here on earth for the number of years that he gives us. Notice we are not the light, but we are his light in the world. That we are like the moon that reflects the sun. And notice what our lives as light is supposed to do in verse 11. Take no part in the fruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And don't we love that? We love looking at people and pointing out all the things that they're doing wrong. Because usually it's not something I struggle with, but I like noticing, oh, did you see what they did over there? Oh, did you hear what they said? We like pointing out the darkness in other people's lives. But notice how our lives are supposed to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And this might surprise us. Look at verse 12. For it is shameful... Even to speak of these things that they do in secret. So we don't call them out by naming it. That's not how we expose evil. But then in verse 13. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For in anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we expose evil. We expose darkness. We expose sexual morality and purity and covetousness. He says in filthy talk and crude gesturing by living the life that we are called to live. That's how we expose darkness is not by pointing it out, but we expose darkness by living the lives that we are supposed to. In fact, we shine light in the darkness by getting up each and every morning, reminding ourselves of who we were and that we have been given new life from the dead. And then we live lives devoted to God. You know what? When that happens, the scripture just says that Christ shines on us 
and through us. And that is how we expose the evil in the darkness by living lives of imitating God that are self, that are loving, that are self-sacrificing. We let our lives speak for us. And I've experienced this. It was been a while ago, but I went to the grocery store. And my kids love it when I go. Um, and I found myself, you know, I found myself walking up and down the aisle. I know the things I needed to get, but there's always the things, man, that'd be great to have. And you go to the ice cream and you think, you know what, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since I've really had some. And I'm justifying buying that half gallon of ice cream. And then if you know me, even more of a love for that is my love of chips. Salt and vinegar chips. And you go, well, I did park really far away. And I walked the extra steps. And so surely that, that's worth a few bags of chips. And then you get there and it's buy one, get one for a penny or something like that. And so you have to do that. Or you go to the cookies and you look and say, hey, it's organic. It's got to be better for me, right? Or the candy. You know, I'll just buy the small bag. I won't, I won't get the jumbo bag. And we're justifying and we're lessening all that we're doing. And then you get all your things in the cart and you go up to the checkout line. And when you know, lo and behold, in front of you is the person that's got the basket that's full of the fresh fruits, the fresh vegetables, the sprouted grain bread. They're buying all the things that I know I need to buy. And they didn't say a word to me. They didn't point out all the things in my basket. What they did, they lived the lives they needed to live or they should live. And just them by doing that exposed the darkness that was in my cart. Well, listen to how D.L. Moody puts it. He said, it is a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We are told to let our light shine. And if it does, we do not have to tell anybody it does. The light will be its own witness. Lighthouses don't ring bells and fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. So true love, it wants nothing to do with sin. And it wants everything to do with shining Christ. So Paul has just given us some major things over the last few weeks. First of all, he told us to walk in unity, that the Spirit creates the unity, and what are we to do? We are to fight to maintain it. We do it by being humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another. We do that by using the portion of God's grace that He has given you and me that is not meant for us, but it's meant for other people. And then He challenged us to walk in purity, to take off the old clothes, to speak truth to not sin in our anger, to work hard so that we can be generous, be careful with our words, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, today he's called us to walk in love. A love imitates God and a love that wants nothing to do with sin. The love that loves to shine its light. And so I would say it like this. You and I were once in darkness, and we were darkness. That we didn't just have a problem, we were the problem. But then Christ came and he dealt with our problem without destroying us by becoming our sin.
He took our sin upon himself as if it was his own, and he died. He was buried to pay the price for our sin, which was death. But then he rose back to life and he returned to his rightful place in glory. He then shines his light from glory down into your life and mine. He then leaves you and me here in this pointed time to be his representatives where we walk. In our homes, in the careers, the schools you go to, the sports activities you're involved in, the grocery stores that you shop to, the gas stations that you buy your gas, in the church. That we are to walk in love, a self-sacrificing love. So you know what the best way we can do that? The best gift you could ever give your spouse, the best gift you could ever give your children, the best gift you could ever give the people that you work with, or that work for you. The best gift you could give that organization that you were involved in. The best gift you could give as you're a parent of a child on some ball team. The best gift you can ever give someone is your personal holiness. That's the best gift you could ever give someone because love wants nothing to do with sin. And I promise you, following God will never ruin your life. So as you get up in the morning, Lord willing, and you go about your day and you go about your week, remember the best gift I can give this person is my personal holiness. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.